How is your work life going? Business? Home? Social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could. But how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made. And by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi. If you're relying on brokerage firms to define and manage your investment portfolios, the current volatility of the stock market might be driving you to explore the question, would I be better off with personal investing? My guest, Dr. Stanley Teitelbaum, suggests that you can build a personal investment portfolio that outperforms your brokerage accounts. If you overcome your self-defeating investment patterns, and follow basic principles based on a better understanding of stock market performance. Dr. Teitelbaum has been a practicing clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst for over 35 years. The focus of his therapy practice includes helping clients to overcome self-defeating behaviors and reroute a pathway towards success. He also consults with wealth managers and their clients to facilitate skill building for improved financial outcomes. Dr. Teitelbaum's guidance is informed by his 30-year odyssey with financial advisors and discovering success through a do-it-yourself approach. Dr. Teitelbaum, welcome to the show. Hamza, thank you so much. You you have a great show, and I I urge your listeners to tune into all of of your segments. We didn't prepare that plug. Thank you for that. (laughs) I really appreciate it. And I'm just so excited to have you on the show. You talk about the importance of distinguishing reality from illusion when it comes to one's approach to stock market investing. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, you know know what? Uh, Investing in the stock market is a a very widespread phenomenon now. Everyone is investing in the stock market. In fact, there are 100 million people in the United States that have stock market accounts, that have accounts in, in the market. That's a huge, huge number. And the reality, or first, the, the illusion when people do that is that hopefully they're going to, you know, create a very substantial nest egg by investing in the stock market. And the reality is that um, there are two realities. One reality is that over the last 90 years, since 1926, the um, stock market, as measured by the Dow Jones Industrial Average, has gained 9.6% annually. Now, that's, that's a nice gain. That's a, that's a nice, uh, you know, a nice gain. And if you think about compounding, there's a certain magic that goes with that. If, if you're earning 9.6% a year and that's compounded, that creates a very substantial nest egg. The problem, the other part of the reality is that although there's 9.6% gain, most investors on average have gained in that same period of time only 3.2%. So that's a big difference right there. And the reason for that has to do with the self-defeating patterns that prompt people uh, in how they're investing, which interferes with or takes away from their profit and their profitability. So I know, you know, I know a lot about psychology and I know something about uh, self-defeating behaviors uh, in, in, in investing, but in other walks of life as well. And that's what brings me to this uh, subject matter. And when you say self-defeating patterns, are you referring specifically to personal investing or also situations where people have brokerage accounts? 
Oh, particularly where people have brokerage accounts, but also in how they do it themselves. And that's what I'm hoping to emphasize as we go forward in, in our discussion. Yeah. Excellent. So what are some reality versus, an illusion, versus illusion issues that you discuss with your clients? Well, the, the other reality that's worth mentioning is that uh, although I mentioned the 9, 9.6% average annual gain, it's really interesting to note that if you look at all of the years in that 90-year period, there are very few years where the gain or loss in the stock market has been between 9 and 11%. In other words, the, uh, the market tends to overshoot and undershoot. So the average becomes between 9 and 11%, but there are years when, many years, where the gain is much greater than 11% and other years where the loss, like in 2008 during the Great Recession, where the loss was like 37%. So there's, there's, there's this back and forth. So we have this average of 9 to 11%, but usually the market overshoots and undershoots. And how does the risk profile and also the duration of the portfolio fit with these longer-term statistics that you're presenting? Since you're presenting statistics that really are from 1926 to now over this longer period of time. Well, in, in more recent years, you know, if we're averaging in uh, years, in more recent years, unfortunately, the uh, gain in the market has been less than the historical average, and that's largely because of what happened in the Great Recession. So we're, we're you know, climbing back out of that, and in fact, the, uh, the market has more than doubled in uh, advancing itself since uh, the de debacle of 2008. Now, I wanted to mention something that I refer to as the rubber band effect, you know, which is that um, what, what goes up must come down, but you can be a big winner in the stock market by being right less than half the time. So it's important to be aware that when things are climbing, they don't, nothing climbs in a straight line. And ultimately, when you have a, a, an investment that goes up substantially, sooner or later, there's gonna be a, what we call a correction. It's going to go down. We have to be aware of that. We have to be alert to that. You know, when I first started investing, and I wanted, I want to tell you next something more about my personal 30-year odyssey in, in dealing with uh, financial advisors. Uh, I, you know, I had the naive expectation that uh, I'm going to invest and I'm going to get good advice in investing and I'm going to hit home runs all the time. I'm going to mm -hmm. you know, really create a, a huge nest egg. And I had no clue about the 10% rule, the 9.6% rule, which is great, you know? So my illusion was that this was going to take off and you know make me a very rich young man at the time. Well, that didn't happen, you know. So the the rubber band effect is about things go up and then they have to come down, and you have to be aware and alert to the coming down part. And it works in both directions. The rubber band effect. The reason it's, I call it the rubber band effect is because it stretches, it overstretches, the market overstretches or a uh, particular stock or fund that you may have invested in may tend to overstretch in either direction. And because it's overstretched like a rubber band, at some point it comes back to the center. That's why, it's, that's why I call it the rubber band effect. Given this norm of up-down, yes. how do you navigate your own decision-making around the investments that you have? Meaning 
you look, you're, you're taking a look at the progression and let's say you have a brokerage account and you're approaching your financial advisor or whoever is really managing that with you. How do you navigate the decision making around the, those investments? Yeah, that, that's a huge issue, and I certainly want to get to that in, in greater detail later. Uh, but I, I'm making a big pitch for not only working with uh, financial advisors, but also for creating your own portfolio alongside of whatever uh, portfolio you may have with a financial advisor. Because I find from my own experience, and this I can tell you about from my own experience, that <clears throat> ultimately I didn't do very well with with a whole bunch of financial advisors and I find that I do better on my own. So I navigate it by myself. Now the other factor that operates there is when you're working with financial advisors, very often in the investments that you're making or that they're guiding you to make, there are substantial fees and commissions. When you're trying to uh, arrange your own portfolio, you have the opportunity to latch into what we call index funds where the, uh, the fees and the commissions are very, very, very negligible. And it's the, it's the fees and the commissions that eat away at profits to a substantial degree. So for those who haven't yet initiated personal investing, just in terms of starting to set up a portfolio, do you have any recommendations? For setting up a portfolio, you mean along, who have, who, where you've never done it before, you mean? Yes. Well, I, I think most people are, you know, are scared. If they don't know, they feel, many people, if they haven't done it before, they have a sense that they may be inadequate, that they don't know enough of, you know, what to do. And so what they, what they tend to do, and this gets back to the illusion issue, is they, the, what I call the looking for the guru. You know, they, they try, and it's, natu- it's a natural phenomenon to try to look for someone who you think has a certain expertise who is going to guide you in the right direction. So the looking for the guru uh, is uh, an approach where many people have internalized negative attitudes about their own financial decision-making abilities, or they feel inadequate when it comes to managing their investments. And so to that degree, it's natural to seek out a financial advisor who you think will have the knowledge and the experience to successfully guide your portfolio. The problem is, and this is what I have painfully discovered on my own, is it doesn't always work out that way. In fact, often it doesn't work out that way. So, for example, let me tell you a little something about you know, some of my, my own personal experiences, have, which has shaped uh, how, I, how I operate here. Uh, <clears throat> I, I had one um, financial advisor, probably he was the first one that that I went to and I thought, you know, I didn't know anything and he knew a lot and I invested a lot of um, uh, belief in his ability. And he would, he was a very nice guy and, uh, you know, he, he was uh, not pressuring and I stayed with him for, you know, for like, for about 20 years without much success. <laughs> Why did I stay with him for 20 years without much success? Because, uh, you know, he, he treated me nicely and he didn't pressure me into anything. And he would say things, to, and, and I, had, I had put him on this pedestal. I put him on this pedestal of the guru. You see, I had anointed him as he was the expert. And I needed him to be up there as the, as the expert. And so he used to say things to me like, 
um, you know, I would call him or he would call me and he would make a recommendation. And the way he would make the recommendation, it was very clever. I never really figured it out for a long time. He, he had a, um, uh, he was with a major um, retail uh, brokerage firm and he had a, he was in a branch office in midtown Manhattan and the research analysts were in downtown Manhattan. So he would say to me, you know, Stan, I think you might want to uh, take a, you know, take a look at uh, stock XYZ, maybe make an investment in that because the boys downtown is how he would always phrase it. The boys downtown are recommending that this is as a good investment. And so I would always think, oh, wow, the boys downtown, you know, this, this like was very impressive to me. You know, like this is like I'm really getting the expert, the mm-hmm. expertise from the experts, experts. And so I would go along with the boys downtown. And very often, more often than not, nothing, nothing really helped me all that much with in that account. I had other I had other financial advisors along the way who uh, would say to me things like um, I'm thinking of one advisor when I um, discontinued the account because it never made any progress. He said he he externalized it, meaning that he would say, well, you know, the problem is I could never reach you when I needed to call you on the phone. You know, it's like he wasn't taking any responsibility for his lack of performance or poor performance in the things he recommended to me. And another another one of the brokers said, uh, well, you know, I had the right idea, but um, uh, there was a drought in such and such a company, and that's why this stock uh, didn't do so well and, and so forth. It sounds like the patient-doctor relationship. Yeah. I appreciate the point that you're making that, you know, we can defer to an expert and then at the same time minimize our own ability and judgment around these types of activities, and there's a lot that we can do. Mm-hmm. to be more informed and more proactive in order to get the better results. What, what you need to know, what, what your listeners need to know about that is, is your point about being informed is the key here. And the first thing to be informed about is that there's research which shows us that 75% of active mutual fund managers fail to beat the overall market. And among those few that do, they fail to do so persistently. Now, that's an incredibly important statistic. That's a very significant statistic, 75%. Mm. 75%. They fail to be, uh, when I say they fail to beat the overall market, the overall market as determined by a benchmark. The benchmark usually is something like the Standard & Poor 500, which is you know, 500 of the largest stocks on, on the uh, New York Stock Exchange and on the NASDAQ. And the active mutual fund managers who charge fees and commissions are trying to outperform that benchmark. 75% of them fail to do so every year. And, it, and for the 25% that do outperform the benchmark, they don't do it persistently. There have been a couple of studies that have indicated that, that for the, when, when an uh, active fund manager beats the, the um, benchmark, they may do it one year, but they don't do it over a long period of time. So what are the implications for the investor? What recommendations would you offer? There are many implications. One important implication is that uh, when you, you know, you've, you, I, everyone has heard a zillion times that past performance is no guarantee of future returns. So when you're looking at a stock or at a fund and you see it's had a good run, 
you, um, you're tempted to, you know, to, to latch on, to move in in that direction and to, you know, to make a purchase in that direction. But it's really important that you not be seduced by short-term gains. Anything, any fund may be successful in short-term, but you really have to look beyond the one-year, three-year, and even five-year performance of that firm, or that fund, or that stock, and probably even need to look at a 10-year performance level before you make some decision about uh, moving in or purchasing that kind of stock or, or fund. Okay. What if it's a new stock? And <laughs> we, we have just, we're just about at the wrap-up point. Can you answer that in 30 seconds? <laughs> if, 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 if it's a new stock, be careful because very often we're easily seduced by new stocks, by hot issues. Uh, it's called chasing heat. It's another term that I like to use where you know, we're all trying to clamor for the latest hot issue. And uh, a lot of them fizzle as quickly as they rise. So we want to take a look at the long term. As you were saying, we started off with that conversation, the history of performance with the annual average gain since 1926 being 9.6%, and in general, looking at the long term, longer-term performance of stocks. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. We're going to take two for a brief commercial. When we come back, Dr. Tattlebaum will discuss how you can overcome common self-defeating patterns that could derail your investment success. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. Welcome back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined by Dr. Stanley Teitelbaum whose expertise as a clinical psychologist includes helping clients to overcome self-defeating behaviors to reroute a pathway towards success. Dr. Deidelbaum talked about the importance of distinguishing reality from illusion when it comes to how you approach stock market investing. 
In this segment, he'll provide strategies for overcoming self-defeating investment patterns. Dr. Teitelbaum, what are the most common self-defeating patterns that you work through with your clients? Well, one of them is like staying too long with a financial advisor that doesn't provide any results. So it's like, you know, with that first one that I mentioned earlier that I had been with for about 20 years, and we did not have much good performance. Well, one, one day he said to me in some kind of lapse, he said to me something like, you know, to tell you the truth, Stan, uh, I don't really know much more than the average investor. And I said, what? You got to be kidding me. And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm being very honest with you. We really don't know. I don't, I don't know. This was and after 20 years of working with him? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, The confession you know, came. <laughs> right. I mean, how long did it take me to see the light of day there, right? And the bottom line there is I didn't believe him. I didn't want to believe him. I needed to keep him up there on that anointed, anointed pedestal as my guru. I didn't want to believe him. And he was telling me he really didn't know. And it was soon after that that I was I was able to leave him, so you know that that's one of the primary self defeating patterns that we stay too long we stay too long with financial advisors who don't uh, who don't help us to perform successfully. How do you gauge how long to stay with someone? How do you decide when the time comes that it might be better to move on? Well, you, you have a portfolio. You you get statements monthly or quarterly or whatever it is. And you need to, you need not to be uh, snoozing uh, when when you get those statements. You know there are a lot of people that just you know get the statements and they shove them away and they don't look at them. It's really helpful if you take a look at your statement and if you allow yourself to be aware of how your portfolio is doing. So you know you, you, if you're working with a financial advisor, you need to be a partner. You need to be a partner, not not a pawn. And uh, uh, being a partner is to know what's going on, to see what, you know, what your um, investments are doing uh, and the investments that he has recommended for you. I had one, one financial advisor many, many years ago who put me in touch with this great hot issue. It it was uh, about some new fangled kind of vacuum cleaner. And he said, this is really going to be great. It's going to take off. And I, and you know, I trusted him. I bought into that stock and, you know, it was something like, um, you know, twenty one when I uh, when I bought twenty one dollars a share when I bought it, and then about six months later it was down to fourteen, and I was starting to get a little nervous. And I called into him and I said, "Listen, um, you know, this is not going in the right direction. I, I think, you know, what should we do here? This is very, very disappointing, disillusioning." He said, "No, no, 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 no. It's it's going to be great. It's going to be great." Well, the truth of the matter is, it went from fourteen like to six. You know, so what good was that? You know, what good was that? So. Uh, how do you stay with someone like that over a period of time? You can't. And so that needs to be a clue to you to have the wherewithal to move on, to move on. So, you know, so that's one, that's one big uh, problem, a self-defeating problem, is uh, to, you know, to trust too long with people who are not uh, performing in the way you need them to help you to perform with your portfolio. Another big problem is, um, you know, what I call the chasing heat, uh, the chasing uh, heat syndrome, uh, which is, you know, people do that. Uh, people do that. They get a, a new issue or a hot new issue or, you know, something that's really rising very quickly and their friends are buying it and other people are buying it and, uh, you know, all the noise from the media is saying, you know, this stock is taking off and blah, 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 and blah. And, uh they, you know, they, they kind of, 
have, have a lapse in their self-discipline. It's really important to have some kind of self-discipline in how you're investing. And they kind of shove reality, dismiss reality, shove reality to the side because they're afraid. People are often afraid that they'll be left without getting to the party. Everyone else is jumping in and buying this stock. And if I don't do that, I'm going to be such a fool by not getting in on the party. Well, often what happens, that's called heat, heat chasing. And often what happens is you, you, you kind of buy in late, it's late, you know, late in the night. And uh, ultimately, uh, what has gone up so much then starts to come down. You know, there's an old, I'm a big uh, believer in Greek mythology. And so there's the, you know, the tale of Icarus, uh, which is that if you fly too close to the sun, you're going to get burned. And heat chasing is if you're jumping in on a very hot stock, you got to be really, really careful and you got to do it for the right reasons. And you got to check it out with yourself. You have to have an internal discipline, which says, what are my three reasons for buying this stock now? What would be three solid reasons for buying a stock? Well, that, you know, that I've, that, that I've done a little research on it, that I think there's something uh, very uh, important about the industry that this is in, that, um, you know, that it's, thus far it's performed very well, but it hasn't, uh, been, it hasn't been overly performing. That's where heat chasing comes in. You don't want to jump into something that's tripled, doubled or tripled in a very, very short period of time because that, you know, the higher it, the higher it's gone up, the more room there is for it to come down. So you have to measure that. You have to weigh that. And it's really important that you not be impulsive in your decisions to move in on buying a particular stock. So, you, as you were saying, not being impulsive means jumping in without thinking about it. You know, the the uh, alternative to heat chasing is staying disciplined. Discipline is probably the single most important thing in managing a portfolio. To be able to check in with yourself and to be able to maintain a certain amount of discipline. How important do you think it is for people to choose stocks that? align with their own interests and their own values. Like if someone's very interested in health and fitness and they're really attentive to the growth patterns in that industry and the the trends, sometimes if you're choosing stocks that relate to your own interests, you're more likely to be informed about those choices. Yeah, to, to a certain degree, you know, that it's very tempting to do that. Uh, but you want to know, you know, where that industry fits into the general picture, you know, and you'll be more interested in, in a stock that is related to your own personal interest. And so you may choose to do something in that direction. But you want to consider how well is that interest, is that stock and its peers in that industry, how well are they doing in the, in the general market? If you're personal investing... <clears throat> Who can you go to? Because obviously you've developed a lot of knowledge over the years. You've developed a strong common sense around stock investing. Who can you go to or what resources would you recommend to develop more of that baseline awareness and knowledge that will help you be an informed investor? Well, there are, there are a couple of things. I mean, what, what I tend to draw from is a, a couple of um, Periodicals like uh, like Barron's and Invested Business Daily; those are you know useful periodicals that uh, outline uh, what's going on in the stock market, make certain recommendations. Sometimes, which I've followed based on the reasons that they're giving why they think something might be uh, might be a good investment. And I try not to listen too much to the noise of the media 
because you know they're touting this and touting that. Uh, but I, th- I think if you follow a couple, two, two or three, uh, basically good um, periodicals like the ones I mentioned, and uh, Kiplinger Magazine is another one that I think uh, you know has some good leads and some good recommendations. That's a way to stay uh, to acquire greater. Um, being greater, more greater informed, and you want to learn a few things. You know there are principles. It's not too complicated. You know it feels when we get started in doing this, it feels more complicated than it needs to be. But there's something called a moving average. You know which which tells you about the trend that a particular stock has. The trend, and there's something called a six month moving average. When the trend moves above that six month moving average, that means the stock is generally in a good place. And it, when it moves below that six-month moving average, it means generally it's not in a good place. It's in a downtrend. Now, this is not perfect. This is not rocket science. This is not perfect. But the whole the whole issue here, I think, is that when we're investing in the stock market, it becomes a matter of probability. You want to arrange, you want to proceed in the ways that give you the best probability of doing well. It's not going to be perfect. You're going to make many mistakes. And that's why I always say something important to remember is that you can be right in your stock market picks less than half the time and still be a winner. Now, people say, well, how is that possible? You know, how do you do that? And the answer is because if you're able to cut your losses, if you're able to stay, to um, take a loss, a small loss, and, and ride your winners to a larger degree, then you could be wrong more than 50% of the time and still be considerably ahead. So I think that's a really important, a really important principle. The, uh, uh, there's something that's called loss aversion. And loss aversion tells us that people don't like to take losses. They make investments, they don't like to take losses. And sometimes that prompts people to hold on to stocks too long because if you, if you have a uh, losing investment, then you feel the pain, the pain of a loss. By the way, there's been research on this, which tells us that the pain of a loss is two and a half times as great as the joy of a winner. That's, that's a very uh, interesting psychological phenomenon. So people get very uncomfortable with their losing positions. And as a result, and this is one of the biggest uh, self-defeating patterns, uh, as a result, they tend to shy away from actually taking a loss. You know, if you don't take the loss, then it's only a paper loss. But what happens very often is a paper loss becomes a, a small loss, becomes a greater loss. A small, you don't want a small loss to become a large loss. And that very often is what happens if we don't allow ourselves to say, you know, I made a mistake. I thought I was making a good move, and it's gone in the, in the wrong direction. I need to own up to that. And, you know, it's really hard to do because there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of shame involved when we make a mistake and we feel stupid. You know, I'm doing the, I, I made the wrong thing, I, I made the wrong pick, and, um, you know, maybe I should just not take the loss and wait until the stock comes back. And, um, and then there's another aspect, which is the, the shame involved not only in having made a bad choice or made a, 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 an investment which went sour, but also because what if I sell it now and then it goes up? Well, then I'm going to feel stupid twice. Once for having made the investment in the first place and a second time for selling it before it goes up again. So these kind of things lead people 
to, uh, you know, to avoid doing something that would be more helpful to them, which is to cut their losses, to be able to acknowledge that, yeah, I made a mistake. And there's got to be a lot of room for mistakes. And, you know, you, you're gonna have, you could have many, many winners. Nobody is perfect. You're going to make lots of mistakes. I make lots of mistakes. But my portfolio has really been much more successful when I'm able to take some small losses and offset that with larger gains. Now, there's another phenomenon called get-evenitis, you know, which is related to uh, uh, loss aversion. And in, uh, in, in get-evenitis, people, um, you know, just want to hold in and, and they kind of rationalize it and say, uh, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, it's, it, get-evenitis is like a, a, an incurable disease for stock market investors, but it can be overcome. And you have to be able to tell yourself, I'm playing this game of get-evenitis. This is not a good game. I need to be able to be able to take my loss and to leave my ego out of the equation. So what does that mean exactly, get-evenitis? Get-evenitis means I'm, I'm, I'm afflicted with this notion that if I stay in there, if I stay in the game, I will get even. Uh, you know, as if much you, as I have a loss right now, it'll it'll come back and I'll get even. And maybe when I get when I get even, then I'll be able to get out. Okay, so you're dealing with the same concept that you were talking about about struggling with accepting a loss. Yes. You maintain it. You keep holding on to it, like a relationship. Sometimes thinking that eventually it will get better. It's a very good analogy. Very good analogy. Yes. Yeah. And all too often, it doesn't get better, or it gets worse. So we talked about really being wary when something is really hot and people are flocking to buy it, that you really have to stay disciplined and be attentive to how the stock is performing over the longer term Mm -hmm. and take into account that loss is part of the equation of winning in the stock market. Right. And facing up when you make a mistake. Are there any other self-defeating patterns? Well, what happened? Yes, overconfidence is another self-defeating pattern, and you know when you ha- when you're having winners, uh, you, you tend to become more euphoric, more excited, more happy, more uh, thrilled with yourself, as if you know, as if you've made some fantastic move here. The truth of the matter is, when when there's a um, a bull market stampeding, uh, you know, there's a phrase called rising. A rising tide lifts all boats, which means uh, when, you know when there's a bull market, most stocks will go up accordingly in sync, and and so we have to be able to distinguish here luck versus skill. You know, when when you're in a bull market and things are going strong, you're having some big winners there, and then you become overconfident. And when you have a winner, then you want to invest more. You want to continue to invest more. And that can become that become can become a problem as well, because there are there's also data that show, research data that show that people who invest um, less, people who trade less, um, tend to be more successful in the stock market than people who trade a lot. This is particularly true, I think, of day, a lot of people like to think of themselves as day traders, which very often is uh, I don't know a lot about day trading, but I I do know it's it's often a recipe for underperformance. So say a little bit more about that. People who tend to invest less tend to do better than those who 
invest more frequently? Yes, there's been there, there's a study by uh, um, Barber and Odeon, two um, financial uh, people, researchers who wrote a paper called "Frequent Frequent Trading is Hazardous to Your Wealth." Frequent trading is hazardous to your wealth, not your health, but your wealth, but also your health, right? And what they found is that frequent traders in that study, they underperform the less frequent traders by 7.5% annually. Yeah. There's another researcher, Jason Zweig, who writes for the Wall Street Journal, who has found the same, who's done the same kind of research and found that uh, frequent traders underperform others by as much as 7.1% annually. Is that related to the points that you made about having a more reactive approach to stock market investing as opposed to being disciplined and engaging your investments with time? Yes, because the, the more you trade, and, and if, especially if you have a winning investment, the more that feeds into that sense of overconfidence. And, the, and so your overconfidence is enhanced in investors that enjoyed uh, or experienced some high return when those returns are simultaneously enjoyed by the entire market. So that prompts you to invest more and to invest more. And then, you know, things turn around. Things turn around. So you got to be careful about that. You have to be very disciplined at all times. The other thing you want to remember is that um, net worth does not equal self-worth. People get very excited about how well their portfolio is doing as if it's a reflection of their self-image and their self-esteem. Net worth is not about self-worth. It's about net worth. And on that note, we're going to go to a brief commercial. When we return, Dr. Teitelbaum will identify how you can resolve other wealth-destroying roadblocks that you might encounter in your investment odyssey. Stay tuned to learn more. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? 
please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. We're back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi speaking with Dr. Stanley Teitelbaum, a clinical psychologist whose expertise includes consulting with wealth managers and investors to provide them with more productive skills for financial success. Dr. Teitelbaum provided guidance on effectively addressing common self-defeating behaviors in stock market investing. In the third segment, he'll identify how you can resolve other wealth-destroying roadblocks. And Dr. Teitelbaum, I know you wanted to talk about one topic which we didn't really get to, which is the role of luck in the draw and luck versus skill. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most important things that we uh, can zero in on, need to zero in on, uh, which is the, the tendency to confuse luck with skill. You know, that's why I said uh, rising tide lifts all boats. Um, the, the solution to that is to examine the long-term performance of a stock or a fund, as we said before, and last year's home run may not be sustainable. You know, uh, there's something called, I'll give you an example, it's sort, of, it's sort of funny. There's something called the Super Bowl predictor. And the way, that, the way that that works is that there's a study that shows from the time the Super Bowl was first inaugurated, I think it was back in 1966, when a, when a team from the original National Football League wins the Super Bowl, the stock market rises that year. And in fact, in fact, in something like 40 out of the last 49 years, that pattern has held up. And when a team from the American Football Conference wins the Super Bowl, it's a down, it's a down year for the stock market, which parenthetically would mean this year, since the Denver Broncos won the mm-hmm. Super Bowl and they're a AFC team, an American Football Conference team, that would, according to this predictor, that would mean it would be a down year for the stock market. Now, this is crazy, you know, because this is total chance. And yet, this, this is a pattern that has held up. So, you know, this is all about luck. It's not about skill. If you follow that pattern and you latch on to that, there's no skill involved. It's, it's just pure luck. And the next 40 years can equally go in the, in the next direction. You know, in the, uh, it, I heard something in the news yesterday in the opposite direction, which said that in the last, um, in the last 20 presidential elections, when the stock market has gone up in the three months prior to election day, the, the party in power continues to be in power. And when it goes down in the three months prior to election day, the party in power doesn't stay in power. And that's, that's held up in 19 out of 20 of the last elections. So there again, you know, what, what is that? You know, this is, you know, the, the, there are these patterns uh, where there seems to be some kind of correlation, but it's not something that you really can count on. And it's not something that you want to confuse uh, skill with luck. There's a, a very famous um, stock market author named um, Burton Malkiel uh, who wrote a book uh, called uh, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And in, in it, he maintained, you know, sometimes a dart-throwing monkey can do as well as an individual in, uh, in being successful in the stock market because of the randomness of the choices. So in reality, though, from a practical point of view, even though you wouldn't necessarily refer to luck as practical, 
how much does luck really play in in the long term? Well, I'd always, you know, I, 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 I say this to myself when I'm playing tennis, when I'm playing golf, or when I'm playing softball. It, it, it's always good. Sometimes I'd rather be lucky than good. You know, so luck, if, if, if you can get a, a stroke of luck, uh, that's great. You know, ride it, use it. So that could help. But be aware that your, your, um, your stock pick is advancing, not just because of your brilliance in selecting it, or because of the advice giving, giving, uh, given to you by a financial advisor, but because of the element of luck, because this stock is advancing, along with all of other things that are advancing uh, in, in the market. That seems to speak to your point about illusion versus reality, that you really need right. to dig deeper to understand what the real information is, not what appears to be true. Right, and, and a lot of times we don't want to do that. We don't want to pay attention to the reality. Uh, you know, we want to go off on our, our own belief system, which, you know, this is, you know, uh, sometimes when, when I'm having a really good week in, in my stock market investment, I start humming to myself the song, Happy Days Are Here Again. You know, mm -hmm. it's, from, it's from the Great Depression when things, you know, starting to get a little bit better. Happy days are here again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's kind of like what, what people tend to do. And you have to be able to uh, think twice, be aware when you're doing that. Of, of what's going on, that nothing goes up in a straight line, that what goes up will come down, and, uh, and not to get caught up in what I call selective inattention. You know, the, um, something that I call the Cassandra syndrome, which is um, uh, being, a, uh, being aware that when, when the stock market is telling us something, we don't want to tune it out, we want to tune it in. And it's sort of like, um, you know, when um, in the Bernie Madoff scandal, there was this guy, uh, Harry Markopoulos, I'm not sure I pronounced his name right, but he saw things going on in, in Madoff's performance that were eye-openers, and he was trying for years to alert the SEC and other authorities, and nobody wanted to listen to him. Nobody wanted to pay attention. And it's sort of like in, you know, in Greek mythology, um, Apollo, uh, the god Apollo fell in love with uh, Cassandra, and uh, he imbued her with the power to foretell things that were going to happen. But when she didn't reciprocate his love, he determined that no one will ever listen to her again. No one will believe her. And as a result, no one believed Harry Markopoulos about uh, Bernie Madoff. And as a result of that, $65 billion was lost. And it would have, uh, Madoff would have been stopped much earlier had people started to listen to uh, Harry Markopoulos. So that's the Cassandra syndrome in the stock market. We need to pay attention to what we're tuning out. Exactly. Are there some other issues that you deal with around wealth-destroying roadblocks? Uh, you know, I think something uh, which is also interesting and some people find amusing and, and uh, counterintuitive, which is that very often men, there are gender differences. Very often men are less successful as investors than women. Now, how, you know, people tend to think, well, you know, men are more, you know, familiar with, uh, with business and finance and investing. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that men, studies have shown this, men tend to be more impulsive, less thought through in the trades that they're making. As a result, they also trade more frequently. And women, in contrast, tend to be more cautious and more risk averse. Men tend to uh, be inclined to take more risks. 
and uh, as a result, they often will do less. Uh, they'll do more poorly than their than women. There's an old uh, saying say, that goes, "Warren Buffett tra uh, trades like a girl." It's mm -hmm. sort of a funny thing to say. It doesn't mean that Warren Buffett is feminine. It means that uh, he uh, emphasizes things like um, making, uh, investing in, in companies that uh, have low, lower risk and that are value companies rather than high flyers. So that's, an, that's also an interesting phenomenon that men tend to be uh, less successful and sometimes more impulsive than, than women. The other thing I'd like to also mention here is that um, the kind of what I refer to as the tilted relationship between uh, investors and their financial advisors. All too often, we think that our financial advisors, uh, you know, are the experts and they and they know everything, and and we therefore we're dependent on them. We need them. And I've had many clients who tell me they're afraid, they're reluctant or afraid to challenge their, uh, their financial advisor because they want or need his approval. You know, what if I say something and he'll not like me for that? And this is, this is, a, this is a red flag. This is a really red flag. You, the, the, the best results are when you are able to establish more of a partnership between yourself and the financial advisor if you're using a financial advisor. I also recommend that people, and this is what I did for myself, that, that uh, if you have brokerage accounts with, with a financial advisor and they're not doing all that well or you feel somewhat disappointed or disillusioned over a period of time, then the thing to do then is to, alongside of that account, to open up another account, your own account, uh, kind of and 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 kind of do both accounts uh, in a parallel kind of way. See how the account you have with the financial advisor is doing over a year or two, the next year or two, and see how your own account, based on your own selections from the picks that you made, hopefully with some information, are doing. And I think you may be surprised to discover that the picks that you're making, especially if you're interested in getting low low um, low cost index funds which come with a very, very uh, small expense, that those funds, uh, that those investments may turn out to be as well or probably better than your account with a uh, financial advisor. Again, what's wealth destroying very often has to do with the commissions and the expenses that go with the uh, stocks or funds that are in your portfolio that you're working on with a, um, a financial advisor, which often is a retail advisor. Are there any other recommendations you have if you're just opening a portfolio for the first time or maybe if you have, you've had something running but you haven't really been very active around it? Well, you, you want to be, you know, you want to take, you want to go slow. You know, like uh, I have uh, a client who said to me the other day, he, uh, he said, after many years, he said, you know, I've acquired some money here in my job. I've had promotions, I've, I've gotten raises and I put all my money in the bank. He said, and this is crazy. He said, I realize that the bank is paying me zero, next to zero interest. So I've never invested in the stock market. I think I have to start investing in the stock market because it, it, for most people, it tends to be the best opportunity to come out ahead. 
And so that's that's what he's going to do. But I'm advising him or cautioning him to you don't just plunge in. You do a little bit of research as much as you can to the best of your ability. Read a bit, a little bit, talk with other people a little bit, and then make some initial choices and and sort of put your toe in the water gradually, and see how that goes. And that's more of a confidence building approach. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We have a few minutes left for this segment. Are there any other key words of wisdom that you might want to share around personal investing? Well, I would emphasize again uh, the uh, importance of learning from your mistakes. You know, again, we all make mistakes. You can be wrong more than half the time and still have a winning portfolio. So you want you want to be very aware of your mistakes and the pattern. Try to chart the pattern of mistakes that you've been making. You don't want to have to always repeat the same mistakes over and over again. You know, there's a, um, uh, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. There was a philosopher by the name of Santayana who, who made that quotation. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat that. And that applies to your own personal history with uh, stock market investing. The other thing uh, to remember has to do with uh, poor market, poor market timing. There's there's a fund there's a, um, a research group called Dalbar D A L B A R which every year does a does research and comes out with a survey that reveals how investors year in and year out investors tend to buy stocks at the top and sell at the bottom of market cycles. This is wealth destroying. In 2014, for example, the Dalbar group. Research indicated that the average equity mutual fund underperformed the S&P 500 benchmark by a whopping margin of 8.19%. That's enormous. So again, there's always that inclination to buy high and, and, uh, and sell low, and you sell in panic because it's gone so low, oh, I can't stand it anymore, I got to sell. Or you're buying high because you're chasing it, and you're buying too close to the top. Thank you, Dr. Tattlebaum. Lessons in personal investing and lessons in life. You can learn more about the role that illusions play in your decision-making process by reading Dr. Tattlebaum's book, Illusion and Disillusionment, available through Amazon. If you're a wealth manager or investor who'd like to improve your financial results, Dr. Tattlebaum invites you to contact him at 212-689-2266. That's 212-689-2266. And I'm going to spell out his email address for you. It's cobaltjag at aol.com, C-O-B-A-L-T-J-A-G at aol.com. And Dr. Teitelbaum is T-E-I-T-E-L-B-A-U-M. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, I welcome you to email me at hosthemda at gmail.com and stay connected by following me on Twitter at Hemda Mizrahi and liking us on Facebook at Turn the Page Radio. Until next week, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to our program. Turn the Page can be heard live every Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then.